Our text is in Galatians. Galatians chapter 4. I'll read Galatians chapter 4 from verses 8 through 20. But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those things which by nature are not God's. But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you, that you may be zealous for them. But it is good to be zealous in a good thing always, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you, I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask you to guide us today in the expounding of it. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would open our ears, that we would hear you speak. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The title of the message is Value Your Freedom, and I really won't address freedom until the very end, but I think in the end you'll see that it's throughout all of what we'll be speaking about. I cover a lot of ground here. There are 13 verses and many, many different thoughts. There are kind of four phases that this text covers. Uh, the first is that he's talking to the Galatians about how they were lost. And then they were saved, and now they're confused. And then he talks about how they treated him when he was with them, and he's contrasting that with how they're treating him now. He then has one verse dedicated to they in verse 17, and he speaks of how the Judaizers are attempting to insinuate themselves into their lives, into being a controlling influence in the lives of the Galatians, and for no good. And then he ends it with uh, a statement of his love and concern and yet his fears, his doubts concerning these people to whom he's writing. So let's start with this first part where he confronts them about their personal history. He says in verse 8, you served those which by nature are not gods. So he's telling them what it is that they used to do and how it's different now. This I believe, occurred in Acts 13 and 14. This is when he went through the Galatia area to, to whom he's now writing. And I believe he's writing soon after that first trip, probably maybe not more than a year and a half to two years after he's been with them. He had traveled quite a bit through there. 
His first missionary journey was probably the shortest one, but yet he did cover a lot of new territory. His later ones tended to cover some of the same territory. And uh, here, a couple of the miracles, he, he uh, exercised, uh, there was a man who was the uh, like vice regent. He was the, uh, he was the uh, servant of a council in that area. And he was given over to Satan. He was a servant of Satan explicitly. Paul confronts him directly. He blinds him. And because of that act, the consul came to Christ. The consul came to the knowledge of the truth. And uh, another later uh, that happened in Lystra was he healed a crippled man. And then this brought many people to Christ. But yet it also brought a lot of uh, difficulty his way. Now in Laconia, where he heals this crippled man, uh, all of the people of Lyconia then start speaking in their own language, and uh, Paul and Barnabas don't exactly know what they're saying, but they figure it out real fast because they start bringing bulls and garland out to them, and they're going to sacrifice these animals to whom they perceive to be Zeus and Hermes. Uh, Zeus is Barnabas, who has the white beard and who doesn't do the talking, and Hermes is Paul, the spokesman. So they're going to sacrifice animals to these, to these gods that have come down to earth. That's what the Greeks believed. They believed that gods could enter into their, uh, their time on earth with them. And yet they have to say, no, 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 no. So they get them stopped. But it wasn't long before they had people from the previous cities they'd visited come and incite. And the way the text reads, it's as if it's almost immediately. But he incites all those people that were going to sacrifice to them. Now that they know they're not gods, they stone them. And to death, it would appear. They dragged Paul out of the city for dead. But yet, that, yet the disciples gathered round him and he rose up and went back into the city. So this is the Galatia to whom Paul is writing. These are the people. He's had all these experiences with them. And it's covered in two chapters in Acts 13 and 14, but there must have been so many things experienced there that we really don't have insight into. Uh, and some of it we'll get to in this text. But uh, in verse 9 it says, and I love how he corrects himself, but now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, and now after you have known God, and then he corrects himself, or rather are known by God. So what is he talking about here? What does this little phrase, this little twist of the phrase mean? Now that you have known God, or rather are known by God, what does it mean about know, known by God? God knows everything, right? God's omniscient. So what is meant by the word know or known? We know it can't be just intellectual knowledge, awareness. It's not that at all. So when he talks about them knowing God or being known by God, it has implied an intimate relationship, a relationship of trust, a saving relationship even. And so Paul is talking to them not about intellectual knowledge. He's talking to them about intellectual and emotional and intimate relationships. So he's talking to them about how God knows them now in a way that God had not known them before. And they know this because they've experienced God's embrace. And once you've experienced God's embrace, you're not going to forget it. You might come to a point where you misunderstand it, where you are attempting to rationalize away what the experience was, but you don't forget. So that's what he's talking about. And he talks about how, in verse 9, but now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements? 
So in other words, with this experience in your life that you can't rationalize away, how is it that you can minimize it to the degree that you have now? How can you make nothing of something that transformed your life? And I believe that occurs because we just get so entrenched in this world. We abandon God. We abandon the whole spiritual realm. When you sing that song about your anchor holds, your anchor holds, what is it talking about? What does it mean? Where is this anchor? Do you have an anchor? We sing about it all the time. So what exactly is this anchor that we're talking about? And where is this anchor holding? What's it? to I propose that it is hooked to something that exists outside of this world so how do we get our anchor hooked to something that's outside if you're in a storm let's say that you're I, I read this book again on daunted courage and, and they, they go through these these incredible storms and there's a typhoon he looked it up afterwards there was a typhoon that they actually went through while they're on this little raft and at times, that raft was just totally vertical. It's like, it's like getting slammed over if, if they hadn't responded correctly to trying to keep it afloat. And so if you were in that raft, you're experiencing the full volatility of reality on this earth, right? You're, you're at the mercy of the storm. But imagine going beneath the surface of the water all the way down to the ocean floor, however far that had been at the time. Could have been thousands of feet, maybe. But do you sense the storm in the same way on the surface as you do at the ocean floor, if we could survive there? But uh, no, no. At the ocean floor, you'd, you'd be calm. There is no typhoon raging on the ocean floor at that moment. It's calm. That's where the anchor would be if you were in a big ship and you were trying to anchor. If you weren't out in the middle of the ocean, thousands of feet, I doubt your anchor's going to hold much out there in the ocean like that. But the reality is this. That's where the anchor goes, right? The anchor goes somewhere where it's not experiencing the volatility of the storm. And that's where our anchors must be in order to allow us to endure through the volatility of life. And yet, too often, we, like the Galatians to whom Paul is writing, our anchors are not there at the bottom of the sea. They're not in this otherworldly area that I mentioned to you. They're here. They're somewhere on this earth. You have them anchored in something, anchored in a relationship with a loved one, anchored in a job that you love, in a home that you're comfortable with. We place our anchor in the wrong places oftentimes. We know where it should go, but we put it in the wrong spot. And then God through the storms of life, shows that it's ineffective. He rips it out of whatever you had it attached to, to where now you're adrift, and you know you're adrift. So then you're fearful, and you need to know that your anchor isn't holding. Your anchor isn't where it was supposed to be. So now, we are joyful in life, not primarily because we know God, but because God knows us. That's exactly what Jesus told his disciples. Do you remember when he had sent the 70 out and they came back and they said, they were so excited, they said, even the demons are subject to us. They were excited. Jesus replied, do not rejoice in this. What a downer, you know? He just brings them right down to where he is. Do not rejoice in this. No equivocation. Do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. So see, he even 
right there, Jesus is telling them, don't let your anchor be attached to this newfound power that you have. Don't let this anchor be anchored in a victory that you've just uh, achieved in your life, even if it's a good victory, even if it's wonderful what you've achieved. If you do take that anchor and place it in that, it will then fail you at some future point. And so right there, Jesus is taking the time at the height of their excitement to correct them about something that's fundamental to living the Christian life well. And that is, where is your anchor? It always must be anchored in God alone, in the fact that he knows you, not even that you know him, because we're fickle. We might get hit in the head tomorrow, you know, and we no longer know God. I don't know anybody, but God knows us. So see, that's the joy. The joy is that our names are written in heaven and God knows us. He loves us. He has an intimate relationship with us. If your joy can be so easily lost because you get up on the wrong side of the bed, then your anchor is nowhere near God. It's far from God. You must have your joy anchored deeply in God such that you can weather all of the storms of life, including getting up on the wrong side of the bed. Now, in verse 9, he also says this, but now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire to be in bondage again? So why is it that anybody who's experienced this intimacy with God would want to be in bondage? Why do we choose sin over God? That's really what it comes down to. Bondage is sin. And so why do we choose sin over God? Let me paraphrase what it is that he wrote in a rather longer verse. Having tasted God's freedom, how can you desire bondage? How can you want that? Especially bondage to weak and beggarly elements. Uh, we talked about this back when we covered verse 3. Even so, we, when we were children were in bondage under the elements of the world, children there being in unbelief in that context in verse 3. And let me read to you Colossians 2, verses 8 to 10. Colossians 2, verses 8 to 10 reads this. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ, this is us. This, he's writing to us This in our time. It was written 2,000 years ago, but yet we live in this time, this scientific era. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. So your anchor, your anchor can't be embedded in anything in this world, any, any science, any factual evidence. We might... We might uh, argue with people about proofs, you know, uh, both historical, uh, exegetical, uh, practical, pragmatic, philosophical. We can do all of that, and I, and I think it's good. But that is never where your anchor is, and it's never where you want a new believer's anchor to be. So we use all of this to dispel all of people's rationalizations against God. I, I listened this week to uh, Tim Keller's uh, The Reason for God, Belief in an Age of Skepticism, and I, I love that book. So many of the chapters are just so, so solid, and he is extremely bright. Uh, I have some flaws that I feel are in it, but overall the book is just excellent. I, I, highly, I highly regard it. 
And he covers so well the knowledge of God, how, how, how we and all people everywhere know God exists. And, and he confronts the agnostics and the atheists in his big church there in New York City every week with the reality that they know God and that they can't rationalize God away. They may try to, but God is there. He's real, and he is in their lives, whether they want him there or not. And yet, what is this bondage then? Why would we want to return to this bondage, having tasted freedom? Let me define the bondage. It's in uh, verse 10. So I, asked, I read that verse 9, weaken beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid for you. So now what does this mean? You observe days and months and seasons and years. And how does this relate to us? I think in many ways we might think this doesn't relate to us now. We're not superstitious like that. And, and in part, I would buy that response. I mean, I can relate to it. Because when I first read this, I think, well, how does that relate to me? I, I'm not superstitious about this day or that day. Now, there are people in our culture who are. There are superstitious people. But I would say that for the most part, most people are not superstitious anymore. But there's a deeper truth here that is true of all of us that, that we all fall prey to and that Paul is warning us about. So let's dig a little bit deeper into that. So what does Paul mean when he says, you observe days and months and seasons and years? First, let's cover it in the context of that time, the people to whom he's speaking. So who is he talking to? He's talking to believers. He's talking to people that want to read the letter, right? They care about what he is saying. And so he knows these people. He was there with them in Galatia. And Galatia isn't a city, it's a province. And so you've got Derby and Iconia and Lystra, all these cities that were in Galatia. So obviously this letter was written to all those people, all those people that he experienced this with. So now, what, what was he saying and to whom was he writing? First, to whom was he writing? He was writing to believers or people that had expressed belief when he was with them joyfully. And we'll get to that. But so he's writing to former Jews, people that practice the Jewish religion, and former pagans, people that either were idol worshipers or, or uh, and really, there were very few atheists in that day. I mean, they, they all knew God existed. They, they hadn't rationalized God away as we now do with our philosophy as much as they did, as, as, as much as we do now, they really didn't do that. They, they widely expressed belief in God. But yet, really, in our culture, we do too. I mean, even all the people that, that uh, advocate this. It's like 90% of the people still believe in God in this country. We know intuitively, rationally, that there is a God. Many people just don't know who he is. They, they, they wrestle around. They don't want the God of this religion because of that, of that religion because of this. You know, they, 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 They've measured all the gods and found them all wanting, but yet they know God is real. They know God is there, and they lose interest in seeking him. So in this time, though, you've got these former Jews, you've got these former pagans, very, very different people, right? Extremely different. You had the Jews that were monotheistic, that had this law, and you had these pagans that were highly immoral, that, that practiced various whatever it was that was in their culture. Uh, nothing consistent, it was just whatever, whoever was leading the religion advocated is right this week or this month or this year. Whatever whatever baggage has been accumulated through the existence of their local religion, that's what they advocate. 
Judaism was just so solid, so revolving around the word. Now, it too might have kind of drifted a little bit, but still, very different people, these people that are now new believers in this Galatian church. But what was it that they had that was very, very similar? And I believe it was their fears. When they abandoned Judaism, when they abandoned paganism, and they gravitated to the gospel, what they each abandoned, and the fear of their abandoning that, is what they have in common. And it's exactly what Paul is writing to when he says, uh, you observe days and months and seasons and years. This superstition, this fear of leaving something that you're accustomed to, that you're comfortable with. That's scary, isn't it? If you're out in the ocean and you're, you're on a piece of wood that's floating and you're lost and derelict and, and you've got this little piece of wood that you're fearful isn't going to, to save you and yet you see something bigger floating over there, what do you do? Do you just drop that piece of wood and swim for the other one? Or do you stay on your little piece of wood and try to get over to that other one? I don't want to give this one up until I'm over there, right? And so we don't want to give up something that we have until we're absolutely sure that we have this other one securely in our grasp. And yet, Christianity had overwhelmed them so quickly, had, had trounced their former religion so completely that that wood was destroyed. They're left to only with that. And yet now they're in fear. They're fearful. All that intimacy, all of that time with Paul where they'd convinced them of the rightness of Christianity, where they'd personally experienced it and he'd modeled for them how to live out their Christian lives, that went away apparently with Paul. And in their place, he had appointed elders. Barnabas and, and Paul had appointed elders in their place. But apparently these elders weren't very good. They were newbie elders. They were bad elders. They were lazy elders. Who knows? But they weren't keeping these people up into the Christianity that Paul had introduced to them. And, you know, they didn't even have this to rely upon, right? So they had the Old Testament. They had the fulfillment of that. It's hard. They're left with a difficult task, and they weren't succeeding at it, in my opinion. And so here we have these fearful people who have seen their former religion destroyed, and yet now this Paul has gone away, right? He's, he's left us. It's kind of like when Moses went up on the mountain, and they're left with Aaron, what did the people experience? Why did they want those golden calves? They were experiencing fear. They were out in the middle of nowhere, and this leader has left them, and now they're fearful. I believe the same thing is true here. Though they were transformed by what had occurred in their lives, they're now lost and confused because they're forgetting that Paul is not God. They've imputed to him. They've placed their anchor in Paul, and now Paul's left, and their anchor isn't in God. So, so Paul is trying to get them to place their anchor back in God. And that's where we are. Yes, we're, we live in a fairly uh, robust Christian world. And yet, works righteousness is as powerful in our world today as it was in their day 2,000 years ago. Works righteousness had conquered Judaism, had it not? These people felt for their many keepings of the laws, their many washings and ceremonial observances, that they were right with God. And yet John the Baptist came to disprove that. John the Baptist came to show that that was wrong, that they were not right with God based on their outward observances. It had to be in the heart. So again, they're, they're, they're lost. They're, they, they have the, the potential to, to 
misunderstand this works righteousness, and we do too. We want our anchor to be in something. If your anchor is in anything on this earth, anything on this earth, and, and we so often do that, we rip our anchor out of God and put it somewhere else, then you're going to resort to works righteousness. It's just the way religion works. We do practice the Christian religion, but yet it is solely founded upon God and what Christ has done. And all of these things are fruits of it, right? All of our good works are fruits of our belief, fruits of our Christianity. They don't get us any closer to God. Our sins don't get us any further away from God. And that's what these people didn't understand. And it's what also in our culture, we Christians often forget. In that Tim Keller book, he was saying that he's attended conferences where, where learned theologians get up, liberals, but they'll say, we don't need the cross anymore. People don't understand it. They think it's yucky. I do too. All we need is to focus on is God's love. God's love, God's love. Not understanding that the cross is God's love. It's hard to believe that a learned Christian in our time could come to that level of, of, of idiocy in terms of a mis basic misunderstanding of what the cross was all about and who Christ is and what he's done. We think that we can get the fruit of Christianity without Christ and the cross. It's silly. But if you spend any time at all reading liberal books or hearing liberal messages, that is their message. They want to pitch Jesus. They want to resort only to God, this nebulous God, and say that he is love and therefore we will emulate him. And that's how we will be saved. And that's how we will save others. Now, let's go on to part two. Uh, Paul reminds them now, again, he's trying to stir up their remembrance of this what it is that they experienced, how it is that they treated him. This is all good. It's going in a good direction. But you can tell that Paul is pouring his heart out, and he's a little sad. He's a little depressed here. He said, become like me because I became like you. So what does he mean? Become like me, obviously. He means put your anchor in God alone. But when he says, I became like you, what exactly is he referring to? I, I think he's referring to that I became like you, meaning that I was you. I lived exactly like you. I've been down the path that you're going down now. And it leads nowhere. It does not lead to God. So quit going down that path. He described himself then as more zealous than all his brethren. And if there's anything that you really can't open a zealot's eyes and ears to, it's to anything that is inconsistent with what it is that they're zealous about. And what he was zealous about was good works. He had earned God's favor through all of his many, his pedigree in Judaism, his studying on, at the feet of Gamaliel. He was right with God solely because of who he was, of what he'd experienced, of, of his pedigree, of all of his hard work and effort. And he is telling them, I've been down that road, and this is the road that these Judaizers are inviting you to go down. And it's pointless. There is nothing down that road that is of value. Until Jesus had opened Paul's eyes on the road to Damascus, he was totally blind to all that Christianity means. And yet Christianity was embedded in Judaism. It was the promise of all the prophets. And yet he could be so blind to it, and yet he was so learned, intellectual. Jesus told him, take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. He tells us that. So how is it that we take that yoke upon us? It's through a simple act of obedience. We just basically pitch our own 
re reservations about relying solely upon God and instead do whatever it is that God tells us to do. There is, there is freedom in that. There is relief in that. Martin Luther, uh, you've probably watched the film, but he worked harder than any of the monks in his monastery. He slept so little. He wrestled with, with Satan, and yet his tempter was constantly besting him, constantly overcoming him. He was a most miserable man, and that's because he was still embedded in this works righteousness way of relating to God. And only when he found grace in the book of Romans and when he really saw that speaking of the grace of God saving him and that works are meaningless, only then could he relax, trust in God for salvation. But until that time, he would climb those steps at the church and he would do all those works. For years he was doing this and he was a most miserable man. And all of us can fall prey to this to one degree or another. Uh, he was just so very diligent at works. Most of us aren't nearly as diligent as Martin Luther was. And so we don't realize how little, how little our works are gaining us, perhaps, because we're just not as hard at work in doing them. Uh, there is a scene that I love from uh, The Matrix in the first movie where Neo hasn't been to Zion and all that yet. He's still in our world, the make-believe world. Uh, but yet he's riding with them in this continental, and he's, I want out, I want out. So they open the door. And he steps out of this, this uh, car, and he looks down back behind him where they'd come from. And then Trinity is in the car, and she's speaking to him. And she says, Neo, you've been down that road before. You know where that road leads. And you can see him looking back, and, and he knows she's right. He is so resistant to going with her because he's afraid. But yet, he wants to go back to what's comfortable but yet he overcomes that desire to go down the comfortable road that he's been down before because he knows that it's not going to answer his innermost need, his innermost search that he's on. And so he gets back in the car and goes on with them. But see, that's what is happening with these Galatians. They have gotten out of the car. They're angry about where they're going. Their works righteousness, Paul had, had said it meant nothing. But now that they've got these people saying, oh, no, it means everything. It's so important, this stuff. So now they're confused, and they want to return to what had always been comfortable for them. They want to go back to works righteousness. And why is that? Tim Keller had an excellent point in his book, and there was a woman that he spoke to, and this woman hit the nail right on the head. She, when he shared the gospel, and she understood the gospel, she was terrified. And she said, if this is true, if my salvation depends on nothing other than the goodness of God and nothing at all on my works, then that means that he can ask anything of me and I should really do it because I owe him everything. Until that point in her works righteousness way of viewing it, it was all about a deal. We're all in the middle of a deal with God. I'm going to do this if you do that. I'll do this if you do that. And so see, she recognized immediately that if it is all of God, then God owns you. And isn't that what the gospel says? You have been bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So you're not your own. Your calls aren't yours. The yoke that you have on you is God's yoke, and he'll direct you where he wants you to go. And you cannot oppose that and be happy because you're God's. He has, 
he has it built into his children that they will not, they cannot be happy apart from him, apart from obedience to him. And that obedience is easy. It is so easy. But we fight against it. We fight against it through fear, through fear of, of total obedience. We don't necessarily, we're not comfortable telling God, yes, we'll do whatever it is you want us to do because we don't know yet what he wants us to do. And yet that is what God expects from us. He expects that openness, that commitment, that, that uh, selflessness. He wants us to cast ourselves entirely into his lap upon his will. And he just does it. He says, this is what I expect of you. I want all of you. You know, we might think salvation is free, and it is. But it costs us everything. It costs us everything that until that moment we may have valued. And that's what the Galatians have been reflecting on since Paul has left. They don't see it yet clearly that they have to give up all it was that they had to go where it is God wants them to go. And it, they're fearful. They are just uncomfortable doing that. Now let's go on to verse 13. Uh, you know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. This is what I referred to earlier in that so much happened in Acts 13 and 14 that we don't know. We know he was beaten badly. And so we know he was dragged out and left for dead. But we don't know exactly what this is that he's talking about. It's obviously something that is very personal, somewhat embarrassing. He, he could have felt justified in them not uh, uh, accepting him as warmly as they did. So we don't know what it is. But as you read missionary stories, the one thing that I see over and over and over again is, is dysentery. Just things like this, just, just very, very difficult things that these people go through when they enter into new parts of the world. Maybe it's something like that. I don't know. But I know that Paul here is commending them for how they treated him, how they ministered to him, and how they loved him, despite this physical infirmity that they could have kind of been appalled by and rejected him for. He said, though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me. They loved him, and he is, he, he is reminding them of the love that they experienced for him. He said, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. Now, why, why would someone love somebody? Why, why does love come upon someone that much? If you've ever watched any movie, like where someone gets good news, and someone brings them a letter, and they get this good news, what do they do with that person that brought them the good news. They typically give them a big hug. I'm so happy. My love is overflowing. I'm going to choose to love you. You brought me this good news. Therefore, I love you. So that's exactly what it was with Paul here in the Galatians. He brought them the good news and they loved him for it. They gave of themselves entirely to him. Now, they loved Paul because of the message and the message was the message we all know. It was the gospel. It was salvation through grace. And so he goes on to say, what, why now the difference? What then was the blessing you enjoyed? This is verse 15. For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? So see, with that initial salvation came this embrace of the truth 
this embrace of salvation that overwhelmed them, that overwhelmed their senses. They are spiritually reborn. Now Paul's away. They're returning to their normal workaday world. They probably enter back into sin in some form because it's not like you can ride on that Holy Spirit high for the rest of your life. We all know we enter back into temptation big time. So here they are experiencing this return to the real world, the reality. And Paul is now gone. So they're having to endure this. And they really are being overwhelmed by the enemy. And so what Paul is doing is writing them to the truth. He's saying, this is why. This is why you've lost what it is that you had. This is how you must get it back. And they're thinking, well, it's kind of like outside of their control at this point. These Judaizers are telling me all I have to do is observe days and months. And it's, it's all within my control. And so often we want to do something to get it back. Uh, this harkens back to when I was a young believer. I was out in Southern California, and I was at a Bible study where I'd, in which I'd become Reformed, and we invited a local pastor because there were several of us that had become Christians, me, Reformed, but several other Christians, and uh, none of them had a churches. Several of the people didn't have churches. And so uh, the man that was leading the Bible study, a seminary student from Westminster, he invited a local pastor out. Well, this pastor came, and at first he just sat there, and we went through our normal Bible study. And then as the Bible study went on, he began saying things, and he would, and he would interject thoughts and things at the, at the points in this study. And by the end of the study, I was just overwhelmed with the grace of God. I, I just felt like God was in this place. It was beautiful. And as he's saying he has to get, go leave, I help him get his jacket on, and he leaves. And I think the Holy Spirit walked out the door with him. I don't know why, but he did. And so this man was filled with the Holy Spirit, and it overflowed into our hearts. Now, the interesting thing was, though, that I and only another lady experienced this, and yet we didn't know it that night. The rest of them didn't. So the next day, I actually spent the night there because I had to go to school nearby the next morning. So I spent the night there. And when I returned from school, I got up early, went to school, came back. And when I walked into the bedroom to see this woman, uh, immediately our eyes caught. And we knew that we had both experienced the same thing. We had experienced the Holy Spirit that night before. And that night before, she had disappeared. Right at the end of the study, she took off. I mean, she knew what she had experienced and she knew that it was gone, and she didn't really want to stand around and make small talk. And I didn't either. I was out there making small talk with some of the other people, and then finally I just went into the, the den where I was going to spend the night and shut the door and cried. I didn't know what had happened. And yet, as I'm sitting there looking in the den at my book, I'm looking at my, the notes that I took, and I'm writing down who said what. I'm trying to get back what it is that I had experienced. What of these words has done this to me? I wanted to repeat it. I wanted to lengthen it. And that's not within our power. So see, whatever the Galatians had experienced, that filling of God's spirit, they wanted back. And they wanted control of it. They wanted to be able to sit there with their notebook and do whatever it is, speak whatever incantation they needed to, to get that feeling back. It's what we all want. Any of us that ever have ever experienced that, we all want it back immediately. And yet, we learn that that's not how God works. That was a special blessing that he bestowed upon me and that woman that night that, that he might never do again. And so, it is a reminder that you're his, 
It's a reminder of the love that he had that day, but it was in that man. He brought it out through that pastor that came to visit us. So we ended up going to that man's church and worshiping at his church. I wanted it. I was willing to do whatever was necessary, but it wasn't within me to bring it about. It's all in God's hand. God does this. And so that's why works righteousness. That's why works is so powerful a hold in our lives because we think we can then control God in some way, that we can bring him out to, to uh, fill us in this way. Now, I'm not saying that it isn't related to our actions. We know that through prayer and study, we can come closer to God. But this being overwhelmed with God's presence, that is something that came to these Galatians and they wanted it back. And yet now they're casting all about for it. They're going astray in their desire for it. And that's what Paul is correcting them on. And he says, have I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? So he's telling them the truth now that these people are capitalizing on their experience. They're attempting to lead them astray and it's not right. He says in verse 17, they zealously court you, but for no good. They want to exclude you. Isn't it weird? Let me read verse 17. They zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you, that you may be zealous for them. It's like reverse psychology. These, these Judaizers seek out these Galatians who are weak in the faith in order to tell them that they must do this, that, and the other thing. And then they say, oh, yeah, you're beneath us. Yeah, you're, 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 not, you're not yet up here. We're up here. You're down there. And so there is then this incentive to make you climb. Now you're on fire. I want to get where you are. I want to get where you are. All culture based on this. Culture all based on putting you in your place, which is way down here. And the leaders, they're up here. You know, and to get up there, you're going to have to do this, 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 and that. You're going to have to become so obedient to me that you, sa you sacrifice your own wills to be obedient to me because I'm the leader. I can get you up here. I can get you back where you need to be. And that's what he's warning them about. These people are using you. So open your eyes. They're using you. And when you think about it, and everybody asks this question concerning Christianity, it's too easy. How can God just save me? I'm so bad. I don't have to do anything? That doesn't seem right. And even after having become a Christian, I can go do this horrible stuff, and I'm not, I'm not separating myself from God? I'm, I'm not losing my salvation? See, this is the thing that is so easy to convince of people who are coming out of works righteousness. You had it right in the first place. Yes, it's not that easy. Paul's a liar, right? That's what they're saying. They're saying Paul's lying to you. It's not that easy. You gotta work at it. It's hard work. You have to do this, do this, do this. Don't do that, do that, do that, okay? Right? And that's, that's the world we live in. I remember when I shared a while back uh, from a study that was done, a survey that was done, and this one young Mormon woman said, that uh, these Christians don't have it right. You know, they're confused, these evangelicals, because they don't see that their works earn their salvation. Very clearly, she understood Mormonism exactly. And yet, so many people that claim the name of Christ also are confused, that aren't in cults, that are just in liberal churches, or, or confused, and maybe not in any churches. But this is something that the Bible is dead set against, uh, salvation is of grace. All of the fruit that you bear in your life is only as a result of salvation. It does not lead into salvation. All of the works that you do. 
All of the works that you do gain you no greater access to God. All of the sins that you commit gain you no lesser access to God. You cannot sin yourself out of God's grace, out of his love. When you are his child, you are his child forevermore. You might go through very difficult struggles in your life. You might sin and sin and sin, and yet God will keep his hold on you. Yes, he'll bring discipline into your life, just as he promised us. But he brings his discipline into the life of the most obedient, as look at Job. So his discipline is going to come into everybody's life because we all fall short of the glory of God. So we all need to hear this message of grace, the fact that God saves us apart from anything that we do or don't do. And our intimacy with him is predicated solely on that. That's why you can enter into a, a relationship with God like that. You, any one of you who are gods can enter into his throne room in an instant. But yet we all, when we sin, we want to spend time in our own man-made penalty box. You know, I'm going to go over here. I'm unholy. So I don't know, an hour, two hours, however long it takes me to feel better about my sin, that's how long I'll stay in my penalty box. Until that time, I really can't associate with you folks because you're all better than me. But once I'm back, then I'm maybe even better than you at that point, you know, because you didn't spend any time in the penalty box, you know. You're not, you're not penalizing yourself like I have the willpower to do. So, see, Phil, a few weeks ago, talked about that at the Lord's table. You know, we, we think we can discipline ourselves by keeping ourselves from the Lord's table. No, it's not our place to do that. We go to God for grace. I don't care how sinful you were in the week past. When you come here, you go to God for grace. You come here, you hear the word, you pray to God, you, you uh, eat the elements, we do this because we're sinners, not because we're at some level of sinlessness that enables us to move forward. No, we do it in obedience to God because we must rely upon the grace of Christ. And that's his blood. That's his body. It's not us. We're not over there. Let me ask you a question. Let me draw you a picture. If, if every time... We opened our Bibles. Light burst forth. You hear angels singing. The love of God fills your heart, fills your house. Would you ever have a closed Bible uh, anymore? No. All those Bibles that are on our bookshelves would be sitting around on our tables. We'd buy more. We'd get them all and lay them everywhere. We'd, we'd, we'd uh, place them on our desk at work in secret places so the unbelievers wouldn't know that they're being influenced by the power of God. <laughs> right? If we could control the power of God in that way, we would. We really would. And that's why he prevents it. He, we can't. We can't do that. The method of gaining that influence in life comes through God but yet it comes through a disciplined reading of this word. Oh, it's so hard. Oh, here, let's read. It's, you know, I, as much as you might love the Bible, there are really boring parts, right? Here, I just flipped it open. Ezekiel 29, 13. Yet thus says the Lord God, at the end of 40 years, I will gather the Egyptians from the peoples among whom they were scattered. I will bring back the captives of Egypt and cause them to return to the land of Pathros, to the land of their origin, and there they shall be a lowly kingdom. See, I don't know where Pathros is. I know where Egypt is because it still exists. I don't know if Pathros still exists. Maybe some of you historians might. But uh, 
the, the reality is that we have to work hard at this. And not all of it is as easily accessible as some of the New Testament epistles that we might memorize portions of. There are so many people in our culture now, in Christian culture, that really the Bible doesn't start until Matthew, right? Yeah, that's a storybook. I remember I was talking to someone recently, and, and they were really of that mind. That, well, that, that's different, right? That's, that's, that's a different Bible, right? It's like, we don't need that anymore, do we? Uh, people are funny. Uh, they, they really do lack understanding. As a new believer, I did. I had no idea what the Bible was. As a new believer, I did not know who Paul was. I came to God. I was a Christian. I, I had no idea who Paul was. And they started talking about him in a Bible study. And I made the mistake of saying, who's Paul? Boy, you know, I mean, you know, I'm an idiot then. I mean, all these young people, oh, you don't know who Paul is. Oh, I was such a doofus. So I learned not to ask any questions in that Bible study. But it is surprising. Here I was on fire for God, and yet I had no idea who Paul was. So now, now I know who Paul is, right? So now I'm that much closer to God. But back when I didn't know who Paul was, oh, I was so far from God. Now, uh, the reason I brought up the illustration of the spiritual potpourri in our homes is uh, that God uh, clearly tells us in Scripture that it takes our effort. I've, I've just got done telling you that salvation is all of God, all of grace. You have absolutely nothing to do with it. And I'm absolutely right in that. But sanctification is cast out to us. God says... He who began a good work in you will continue it. But that good work is best suited to you as you're giving yourself over to God every day. And so through sanctification, through justification, all of God, through sanctification, he involves us in it. Sad to say, I wish it was all of God. It would be so much easier. I could just plot a line. I'm going to be this holy by next month. You know, <laughs> if it was of God, I could do that. But it's of me. I'm a lazy bum. I'm, I might be down there next month, you know. And so I know that God wants us to remember this. He wants us to recognize that we are solely dependent upon him for our spiritual growth. And yet it does, he does involve us in it. In 2 Timothy 1.6, Paul told Timothy, stir up the gift of God which is in you. Now, what does it mean when it, when, when it says, when you hear the word stir up, what does it mean? Stir up. I think of a liquid, you know. I pour something in there like to make it taste like lemonade or something. It sinks to the bottom. So you stir it up and you get it now to where it's all evenly mixed throughout there. But then if you let it sit for a day, it's settling out. The lemonade is slipping to the bottom again. That's how we are in our spiritual walks. If you think you can rely upon your spiritual strength today that you had from a week ago or a month ago, you can't. You know that. You've learned that the hard way. We continue to persist in this myth that once we've achieved a level of holiness, we'll stay there. We'll just coast along. And it doesn't happen. There will be circumstances in your life, and just through natural attrition, God is taking it away. Why? Because he wants this being used functionally, not as spiritual potpourri in our homes. He wants us to be applying it to our minds, living out obedience to him through the proper application of it. In Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, the writer says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. 
And sometimes we don't always have one another's best interests in mind. Um, we sometimes are selfish in why we contact other people. I'm going to befriend that person because they can do me a favor down the road. We can rationalize that away, but the reality is there. Um, we sometimes feel guilty because it's like, oh, I haven't talked to that guy in six months, and now I'm going to go talk to him and ask him for a favor. Okay, I'll ask the favor next week. Today, I'll just go talk to him. Oh, it's good to see you. So I remember uh, someone doing that to me once. It was just so obvious. I, I, I really wanted to call him on it, but I, I just, too nice a guy, I guess. See, another notch. I'm up there. I'm climbing. Yeah. But so, uh, anyway, we think this way. We do tend to use people. As a matter of fact, uh, a book that I another book that I listened to recently said that if you want to know real answers to real questions, you sometimes have to ask the questions in subtle ways. For instance, if you want to know whether a man is a good husband, you say, are you a good husband? Yes. 100%. But another way of phrasing that question that is like two degrees removed from that that can still give you a, a fairly good, accurate answer is, do you believe that it's appropriate for husbands and wives to use one another? Because if a man says yes to that question, he probably isn't a good husband. He, uh, he misunderstands the whole role of a husband and wife in marriage. And so there are ways of getting to what you want to know that are much more subtle than direct confrontation. And I forget why I'm saying that now. But anyway, um, I want to get back to my text. I keep slipping away from it. Uh, love cannot survive without this stirring up. Love will wane. And you don't want that. You want it to be stirred up. You want it to be on fire. This is true for love between you and your spouse. It's true between love between you and your children. It's true between your love and any other family in this church. The degree to which we grow distant from one another is a reflection of the amount of effort that we're putting into it, the amount of love that we're putting into it. And I, it's been my observation over 12 years that before people leave, they almost always grow distant from most people in the church. They've made a decision, they don't like this church anymore and they wanna leave typically, and so then they have to find it wanting in some way. And so what they do is they start drawing into themselves and some people might go after them, but it's hard to remember that, you know, to when you come to church to go seek out this person or that person. And so they can tend to draw into themselves, and then they start justifying why it is, well, you know, they're kind of cold anyway here. I don't really have any good friends here. Something happens, and they don't seek me out. They don't care. They don't care about me. But yet at the same time you're withdrawing, you're withdrawing also from them. You're not going out and asking them. So I'm not saying that, that's, um, that it's wrong to leave a church. I'm just saying that, that if you must leave a church, at least don't attempt to rationalize it away as that you're doing it only because they're bad. You've risen above them. You know, you were here for a time, God had you here for a time, and now you have to go elsewhere because you've reached this level where you're obviously to be applied at another church that God has in, in, in mind for you. All of that could be true, but just don't rationalize it away. You know, uh, tackle it just as God wants us to tackle everything. Head on, you know, honestly. Honesty with ourselves, honesty with one another in the body. So when we say stir up love and good works, it means that it wouldn't happen otherwise. You must stir it up. This is something that settles out fairly consistently, and you must stir it up in order to make use of it. 
I want to read you something that Peter wrote in his second letter because I think it is indicative of his heart. Uh, he was nearing the end of his life. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, for so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That alone I, we could preach a sermon on. I mean, it's just so filled with meaning. But I wanted to emphasize this next part. I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. So Peter's life was, he said, as long as I'm in this flesh, it is my responsibility to stir you up. So obviously he's stirring himself up, right? I mean, we can't stir others up if we're not stirring ourselves. So I'm stirring my lemonade, sipping it, and then I'm stirring your lemonade and giving it to you all to share with you. So I, we should all be trying to do that as best we can to stir up love and good works, to make our hearts draw closer. Now, the title was Value Your Freedom. And I know I've drifted far from that, but I want to share some of this with you right at the very end here. Uh, Paul is accusing the Galatians of abandoning the faith, of abandoning Christ, abandoning him, Christianity, but still he's much more concerned about their salvation. And he tells them they are submitting themselves to bondage willingly. Because only freedom in Christ is true freedom. Anything else apart from Christ is bondage, some form of bondage. We were built to serve. We were made as creatures on this earth in order to serve. And we will serve. We will serve ourselves, potentially. We will serve others that we deify on this earth. I mean, some, some people deify their wives. Some men deify their wives. Some wives their husbands. Uh, some some uh, moms their children. And then when their children leave, their, their God has left their home now. So there are many things that we deify that are wrong. But yet we are in bondage to anything if it's not God, because only God is big enough to be a God that is, that is uh, able to have us experience our freedom fully within him, in obedience to him. If you serve anything lesser than God, you're in bondage because your God will fail you. And your bondage will be felt then when your God fails you. Now, why would anybody do this? Why would these Galatians do this? If they're truly believers, too. Why would anybody do this as a believer? Why would they willingly submit to bondage? And I believe it's one word. I believe they submit to bondage through fear that they fear something more than they value their loving relationship with their God in heaven. So what is it that you might fear on this earth that would prevent you from serving God willingly? What is it that God requires of you, extracts from you, in order to get you to be obedient to him? And see, that is what it is that you will then fear. You will fear this obedience, this out-and-out, give-everything-to-God obedience that he wants from you. And so we hold something back. It begins very simply, perhaps. We hold just one thing back. God gets all the rest. I just get this little part. But the problem is, God will never be satisfied with that, and so he will make you go one way or the other. So you will draw more and more back into yourself. And that's what happens. 
through fear, through fear about not obedience to God, we end up drawing back into ourselves. We're then not doing what it is that we ought to be doing as Christians. We're not stirring up ourselves or one another. We are living in fear because we're living in fear of being as obedient to God as he expects us to be. And there is a corollary in our society. We Americans were probably some of the freest citizens ever of this earth. And yet, through fear, we give all that freedom away because we don't want to be fearful. And in our fearfulness, we want security. And so we seek to give away some of our freedoms for the greater security that we value above our freedoms. And Pastor Kaiser, maybe it shared with you a response he got from Ben Nelson a few weeks ago about that. Uh, ben Nelson was saying that in our society, in our current society, we must be prepared to give up some of the freedoms that we earned in this nation for greater security. Right there in his letter to us. Uh, totally violating the, the, uh, the amendments to the Constitution, by the way. But see, what has occurred in our society has occurred because it's occurred first in our hearts, in the hearts of Christians. We are unwilling to live as obedient citizens, as obedient children of God, and so God has, has given us fear in our spiritual existence, and that fear has also penetrated through into our earthly existence because we're one. We're one spiritually and physically. We can't stop this from happening. So the church, as it has weakened in our country, we are, we are fearful of our God and we are fearful of our state. We are fearful of all kinds of things. So we give in to this. We refuse to be obedient to God. We refuse to be obedient to the forefathers of this nation who, who bequeathed us such wisdom. And the only reason I point that out here at the end, though, is that I think it's important that we always tie the spiritual and the earthly together. I tend to forget the latter, the earthly. I tend to love the spiritual. I love talking about that, I love, but, but I sometimes lack that tying it into our earthly experience. Phil is so good at that, and yet here it's obvious that that's why we are where we are. So as Christians in a solid Bible-believing church, it is, I'm deputizing you. Everybody raise your right hand, okay? <laughs> but I'm deputizing you as Christians to stir up love in yourself. It's the only thing that will conquer the fear, and that fear that you overcome in your spiritual life will aid you in overcoming fear in your earthly life. If you're not overcoming the fear in your spiritual life, you will not overcome the state. Because, see, we must not be afraid of the state. That's part of our path now, is we must be willing to stand up for the principles of what we believe in. And the only way we'll do that is with audacity, godly audacity. So... Paul ends this letter, and it's important to remember, too, that sermons are preached from a text that is in the context of a letter. The very last verse here, the two verses, he says this. My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you, I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. And that ended the thought he had at that point. And I believe it's appropriate at times for leaders of the church to say that to people that they love, to people that they're concerned about. I have doubts about you. You know, there, there are ways in which I live out my faith and I have doubts about myself. God-given doubts. I know my weaknesses. 
And yet I know I must cast them upon God. I must go to God for his answers. And I urge you all to do the same. My only doubts about all of us is that we don't rely upon God enough. And we must go to him. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for this uh, uh, letter to the Galatians that spoke to those people of that day and speak to us now. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for all of your many blessings in our lives, uh, for the plan that you have for us to cause us to serve you, to cause us to grow holy. Uh, we know, Lord, how weak we are, how needful we are. We know that we disappoint ourselves, uh, let alone you, and that's why you had to send Jesus uh, to pave the way for us to salvation. It would have never occurred apart from his sacrifice. So we ask you now, Lord, to make us courageous, to have us overcome our fears in living for you uh, by being uh, blindly obedient to you, uh, to acknowledging your right to rule uh, in our lives because salvation is entirely a gift uh, based on the work of your Son. We ask you now to be with us, uh, to bless this day uh, to your service and the week ahead uh, to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.